This is Bill Buford. I'm the author of Dirt. I have spent a wonderful, intense, intelligent afternoon with Trey talking about my book for Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at NYU, visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell, and the author of numerous books about food politics. Her newest is Let's Ask Marion, what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health. Marion, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Marion, this book is the response to a question you've been asked ad nauseum since writing Food Politics, namely, what do politics have to do with food? So what do (laughs) politics have to do with food? Right. That's the question I get asked all the time. It has everything to do with food. All you have to do is look at what's going on with COVID right now and see how the People who are working in meatpacking factories who don't make any money and work under horrible conditions um, have been ordered to go back to work. That's food politics for you in a nutshell. This book is laid out with Carrie Truman asking questions that you go into detail on. What brought you and Carrie together to create Let's Ask Marion? Well, she's an old friend, and about 10 years ago she was running a blog in which she wrote about different kinds of food politics topics. And she started asking me questions, and she posted them under the title, Let's Ask Marion. (laughs) So whenever she had a question, she would send it to me. I'd write an answer. She was fun to deal with about it. So when the University of California Press asked me to do a short book summarizing what I talk about when I talk about food politics, I asked Carrie if she would help me with questions because it was just easier to answer her questions than it was for me to dream up questions that I needed to answer. Well, I think it turned out to be a great idea because the final product is really, really entertaining and informative as well. Marion, what's the biggest problem facing public health nutrition? Today? There are actually three, and it's hard to know which one is worse. One is all the people in the world who don't have enough food to eat. That's probably the most pressing, and those numbers are going up, and the coronavirus pandemic is not helping. And then there are all the people who eat so much food that they become overweight and are at risk for type 2 diabetes and other kinds of conditions. And there are probably 2 billion people in the world who are overweight and at higher risk. So that's a big public health problem. And then there's climate change and the effects of the way we produce and consume food on greenhouse gas emissions. Not only our agricultural system, which is industrial and creates maybe a quarter of greenhouse gases, if you look at it on a worldwide basis. In the United States, it's a little better than that. But agriculture is a big problem, and a lot of agriculture is devoted to feeding animals. So that gets into, if we're eating a lot of meat, we're contributing to climate change. So these are really big public health problems. As far as the hunger issue, Marion, a lot of it comes down to how expensive nutrient-dense foods tend to be. You 
take a pretty simple and logical approach to making good food choices, and that is to select whole foods and mostly plants over ultra-processed, hyper-palatable junk foods. But in reading this book, I learned something interesting about food cost. Well, the cost of all food has obviously gone up since 1980 due to inflation. How has the cost of produce risen in relation to other foods, and why? Well, it's much, much higher. And so when people complain that fruits and vegetables are expensive, they're not kidding. They have it loud and clear. And a lot of it has to do with the way government policy works around the food system. My favorite example is marketing to kids. Food companies spend billions of dollars every year on marketing, and a big portion of that is aimed at marketing to children. And every single penny that they spend on marketing is deductible as a business expense, which means that we taxpayers are supporting their marketing efforts. I think that's the best example I can think of. But there are lots of other ways in which the government supports the current food system, and it would be a lot better if we could figure out a better way of doing that. Although you don't like to use the word addiction when talking about food, you do point out that it is more difficult to exhibit self-discipline when eating whole foods versus foods that were created in a lab to be hyperpalatable. What did research comparing food choices based on unprocessed versus ultra-processed diets show about this? Well, there's the most amazing study that was done last year under the best controlled possible conditions. It was done at NIH by a really good investigator, and he showed that people who eat what are called ultra-processed foods, which is a fancy word for junk foods, people who ate diets that were mostly ultra-processed foods ate more calories and gained weight. And then if they switched to a diet that was less processed, that they thought was just as good. They were asked to compare their taste preferences, and they couldn't tell the difference. But when they ate ultra-processed foods, they ate more calories. And they can't really figure out why. Certainly the people who were in the study didn't understand why they were eating more. They didn't feel any hungrier. They weren't fuller. They didn't like the foods any better than the other foods. They just ate more. And the only thing that they can think of is that people were eating more quickly. Is it unethical for food companies to create these hyperpalatable foods that offer little to no nutritional value? Well, ethics is in the mind of the perceiver. And if you're a food company, you're not a social service agency or a public health agency. You're a business. And your job is to produce returns for stockholders. So from the standpoint of business, it's absolutely ethical. It's not only ethical, it's required. They need to make products that sell. That's their job. And if you talk to food industry executives or listen to them talk, and I've done that, they would love to not be part of the obesity problem. They don't want to be part of the obesity problem, but they've got stockholders to please. So unless we change our investment system and insist that food corporations and other corporations take social values into consideration, in their evaluation and in their stock prices and all of those kinds of things, we're kind of stuck with their stuck. Even if they want to change what they're doing, they can't. So that system has to change, too. Of course, you're talking about food capitalism. Why are alternative meat products like the Impossible Burger great examples of 21st century food capitalism in action? And is the Impossible Burger better or worse for us than a regular beef patty? 
Oh, I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could tell it. Somebody's just done a study and compared people who ate, oh, I think it was Beyond Beef, not the Impossible Burger, but it was one of the plant-based alternatives and found that there were certain biological markers of illness that were lower in the people who were eating the plant-based diet. But that's just a small study, and I think a lot more work needs to be done because the plant-based meat products are ultra-processed. They meet the definition of ultra-processed, and that definition includes things like industrially produced, can't be made in home kitchens, has ingredients that you can't get at a supermarket, you know, that kind of thing. Lots of additives. We hear a lot about superfoods, and this has been a big buzzword in the nutrition industry going back 10 or 15 years, if not more than that. Are superfoods legit? That's a marketing term. A lot of fruits and vegetables are represented by trade associations, and these trade associations have as their job to sell more of whatever particular fruit or vegetable it is. And so they've been funding research to show that their particular fruit or vegetable has a lot of antioxidants or other nutrients. But I could have told them that without having to go through all the trouble because all fruits and vegetables have nutrients. So all fruits and vegetables are superfoods. And what they're trying to do is show that one is better than another. But I think it depends on what you're looking at. And there's 50 different nutrients. Obviously, some fruits and vegetables are going to have more of one than another one will. So you find the nutrient that's highest in that particular one, and that makes it a superfood. But I think it's great that people are eating more fruits and vegetables. Yeah, you know, it's maybe an example of deceptive marketing having a positive impact on people eating more whole foods. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But, you know, if they're selling blueberries, maybe people will eat blueberries instead of strawberries. Is that better? I have no idea. I don't think so. That's a great point there. Now, on the subject of whether obesity is only a matter of personal responsibility, you point out that the food environment changed in the early 1980s thanks to policy shifts in three areas, agriculture, Wall Street, and then also food regulation. How do these things tie together? You would never think that anything like that would have anything to do with food. But agriculture policy changed so that more food was produced. The big agricultural growers, big ag, was rewarded with subsidies and different kinds of payments if they produced more food and they got more the more food they produced. So the number of calories that were available in the United States food supply, and that's what's produced here, less exports plus imports went from about 3,200 calories a day per person, man, woman, and little tiny baby, to about 4,000 a day. And that's about twice what the country needs on average. So there's a huge amount of food available, and that means that the food industry is hugely competitive, and they have to fight fiercely to get people to eat their products. So that's the production side. And then in the early 1980s, the investment system changed, and stockholders began complaining that they weren't getting high enough and fast enough returns on investment. That was called the shareholder values movement. And Wall Street bought it, and now corporations are judged on how quickly their profits grow from quarter to quarter. Well, that was hard on food companies because they were already selling food in a very competitive market. 
And then the third thing was deregulation of marketing to children, which happened in about 1981. Speaking of children and their diets, and there are unfortunately a lot of awful diets out there, are parents who allow their kids to become obese through feeding them a terrible diet and not doing more to encourage physical activity guilty of committing a form of passive child abuse? Oh, I feel so sorry for parents these days. I think parents need a break, and a big one. The parents do the best they can. No parent wants to make their child fat. They're feeding their kids what's marketed to their kids. I have friends who are parents of young children, and they swear they never feed them junk food, they never let them watch television, and they drive down the street and see a McDonald's, and their kids know what it is. How do they do that? That is brilliant marketing. And it's aimed at babies, and somehow they pick it up. And, of course, kids like junk food. Who doesn't? Everybody likes junk food. So I think parents have to be given some sort of help to try to confront a food system that's trying to sell food to their kids. Is there an obvious way to make a rule that rewards healthier food choices for parents or just individuals walking around on this planet? Well, it would be nice if healthier foods were cheaper and more readily available. That would certainly be a big help. I think the cost issue is an enormous one. I mean, people don't want to invest in vegetables that are going to spoil in the refrigerator if they're not used right away, and a lot of people don't know how to cook them. So I would hope that we would have a major educational system for teaching people about food and how to grow it and cook it, and then also set up a bunch of policies that just make it easier for people to eat more healthfully. The sort of way of talking about it is to make the healthy choice the easy and the preferred choice. I think healthy foods are delicious, but you have to know how to cook them. You're right about that. And as a matter of fact, thinking back to my childhood in the 1980s, we were being served some of the same things, but a lot of it was being served out of cans. And that immediately is going to take away from the enjoyment of the freshness of a fruit or vegetable. And I think that we've evolved quite a bit in terms of understanding how to cook these things from home all these years later. I do, too. And food in supermarkets is so much better now than it was 30 years ago. Young people don't realize it because they never saw what it was like 30 years ago. But we have much better food available now. Many more farmer's markets, much more organic food. That's been a big change for the better. Honestly, I feel like that's one of the keys in a person turning around poor dietary choices is actually shopping more locally and going to farmer's markets and seeing what actually grows in the area at any given time and maybe consuming a little bit less meat because the meat is a little bit more expensive versus what you buy it for at the supermarket, but it's higher quality meat at the same time. You could actually go to the farm and see the animal that you will eventually be eating. Yes, I'm not sure everybody will want to do that. That's true. (laughs) But I think if you support farmer's markets, you're doing two things. You're getting terrific food for your family, and you're also supporting a local grower. So you get two benefits for the price of one in that way. How did NASA show us how to produce safe food, and do we follow that advice well? This goes way back to when NASA was sending the first astronauts up into outer space. And they were very worried about whether the astronauts would get food poisoning. You can't even imagine what 
having intestinal distress would be like under conditions of zero gravity. You don't even want to think about it. (laughs) So they were absolutely determined they were going to have to figure out how to produce food safely that the astronauts could take with them and it wouldn't make them sick. And they called in Pillsbury, and Pillsbury worked out this system for producing food safely, and it worked in outer space. No astronaut has ever gotten food poisoning in outer space. And if it worked in outer space, it ought to work on Earth, too. But you have to follow the rules, and sometimes companies don't. And that's why we have so many outbreaks of foodborne illness, and they continue to increase. They've shifted a lot. It used to be a lot of the outbreaks were due to meat, but the Department of Agriculture instituted these methods for producing food safely for meat in the 1990s, and there are many fewer meat problems now. Now the problems are all with vegetables that are grown near concentrated animal feeding operations, so they get contaminated with animal waste. And we have laws, we just don't enforce them very well. Speaking of produce, what is glyphosate and why is it allowed to be sprayed on our crops in 2020? Glyphosate is Roundup. It's the weed killer that everybody buys at their local hardware store and sprays all over their weeds. Hundreds of millions of pounds of it are used every year to spray on genetically modified corn and soybeans to kill weeds around them. And there are two problems with glyphosate. One is that weeds have become resistant to it. And there are now many, many species of weeds that resist it. So that means farmers have to go back to using other kinds of herbicides. And the other problem is it's been associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there have been several cases that have gone to the courts, and the courts have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. So the people who were sick are actually getting paid. Glyphosate was made by Monsanto. Monsanto was bought by the German pharmaceutical company, Bayer. And Bayer is dealing with something like 30,000 claims against them for people getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from glyphosate. Wow. You know, it's discouraging that so many Americans go hungry in this country when we throw away 40% of the food we produce. I read that in your book, and it just blew my mind. How can we change this, Marion? The food that we waste isn't going to go to the hungry. These are two different political problems. I mean, I wish there were some way for food that gets thrown out, if it's still okay to eat, for it to be given to people who need it. But we just don't have the kind of logistics that work for that. Food waste requires, I think, because most of the food waste occurs at the production level. It occurs on the farm or in the distribution to wherever it's going. So that's really where the focus goes. About 20% of food waste is what happens in your household. And you don't have a whole lot of choices about it. If you've got a garden, you can compost. Otherwise, you're throwing it out. It's hard to know what you can do with it. There are lots of organizations that, when we had restaurants, were going around to restaurants and collecting leftovers and giving them to food banks and doing that kind of thing. But that's logistically very difficult. So we would have to fix, we'd have to figure out some other system. I think those two things have to be handled separately. And the best way to deal with people not having enough food to eat is to make sure they have enough money so they can buy food. That would be the best way. 
If you were in charge of America's food system, what would be your first order of business? That would be at a uniform basic income and universal school meals. Just start with that. Pretty simple. What is something you refer to as the big excuse? The big excuse, ah, yes, that we have to feed the world. Whenever anybody criticizes industrial agriculture, which is the kind of agriculture that grows genetically modified corn and soybeans to fuel cars and feed animals, there's very little about food in that. The response to the criticism is always, we have to produce more food at a low cost because that's going to feed the world. But of course, that food doesn't get to people who need it unless those people have money. Food aid is a big, complicated story, but most food aid is in cash now. People are given cash or vouchers so that they can buy food. The food that is surplus in America, and remember, we have about twice the amount of food that the population needs on a whole. I mean, you want to know where waste comes from. That's where the waste comes from. We're wasting maybe not 2,000 calories a day, but maybe 1,500 Per person, every single person in the country is responsible for wasting 1,500 calories a day because you're not eating that. You couldn't. If we all ate all the food that was available, all of us would be overweight. Everybody would be. So I don't think that feeding the world is what this is about, really. It's really about making money for industrial agriculture. Do you have faith that technology, things like lab-grown meats, pollinator drones, floating dairy farms and milking robots, and 3D-printed foods can fix our food system or help fix our food system? Oh, a lot of people are betting that they can. I think that's pretty optimistic. I think the easiest way to fix our food system would be to start to grow food sustainably so that we're not having as big an impact on the environment and make sure that everybody has enough money so that they can buy food. That would really help a lot. Have you ever eaten any 3D printed food? And if so, how was it? I ate a cookie once. Tasted like a cookie. Okay. I tried pizza. I didn't think that did it. It was not my idea of terrific pizza. But the cookies are adorable. You can make them with raised things and printed slogans on them and book covers and all kinds of things like that. I mean, they're really fun. Are you in favor of or opposed to GMOs? Oh, I have a really complicated position on GMOs. I can't answer that in one word. I think they're generally safe to eat, but I think the production of them and the way they're used is really not good for our food system. They're monoculture. They use far too much pesticide. And they're treated as a business, not as something that's for... Most of it is to feed animals or to feed cars. Another statistic that just absolutely blows my mind is that 40% of American corn is used for ethanol, for cars. And to use food to run cars just makes no sense to me at all. I can't get my head around that one. What are sustainable developmental goals, and how likely is the U.S. to get behind something like this? Well, this is a United Nations initiative with 17 specific goals to be achieved by the year 2030. And one of them is zero hunger. 
That is to try to end hunger in the world by 2030. And the goals are there. And each country that is a member of the United Nations is supposed to figure out how it is going to get its population to achieve those goals. So you can imagine that some countries are doing a better job of it than others. And also, there's nothing within the goals that tells countries how they're supposed to do this. But what's good about them is that they're measurable so that you can look at a goal like zero hunger and count the number of people who don't have enough to eat in the world, which the United Nations does every year, and then see how it's doing and at least remind everybody that this is a problem that's not going away. Last question, Marion. Are you optimistic about the future of food? Well, I'm a college professor, and I teach students, and they make me optimistic. There's a future, and I'm teaching a course at New York University for undergraduates this fall on food politics in the coronavirus era, and I'm very excited about teaching it because I know I'm going to have a group of students who want to make the world a much better place, and it's going to be thrilling to be teaching them. Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at NYU, visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell, and the author of numerous books about food politics. Her newest is Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. Marion, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Oh, listen, you're a fabulous interviewer. Thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can check out all of our episodes through booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel so inclined, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review through Apple Podcasts. Helps us grow the show. I'm Trey Elling. Until next time, this is Books on Pod.